You want to turn to Job chapter 10. We are continuing in our series in Job. We're in Job chapter 10. I think most of us, if this statement would be true, that our most meaningful prayer times that are really heartfelt come at times when things are kind of going south. Would you say that was true? That's true. I know for me, even before I was a Christian, perhaps my first real prayer that was really from my heart was when I found myself as not quite a divorced man, still married to my first wife with my current girlfriend ending up pregnant. Uh, It kind of was crashing and burning because I wasn't ready to marry her. (laughs) And, uh, And what I did is I just called on the name of the Lord. I said, God, you've got to help me, even as an unbeliever. And that began a journey that led a year to two years for me to come to know Christ. So I think all of us would agree that oftentimes it is in the times of desperation, of heartache and pain, that our prayers have a reality to them. Well, our dear friend Job has gone through a difficult time. He has lost 10 of his children, all 10 of his children. He lost his livelihood. Then he comes down with a terrible disease, sores from head to foot. His wife tells him, why don't you just curse God and die? Thank you so much for saying that. Now he has his three friends, Elipaz and Bildad, and they have just finished, prior to this chapter, raking him over the coals and telling him the reason you're having so much trouble is because you're a miserable sinner and you need to repent. (sighs) So here's Job. Now, this is not a model prayer, guys. You're going to see in just a minute. This is not a model we would, would want to follow. Now, Jesus gives us the model prayer where? In, in the Sermon on the Mount, what we call the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. This is not a model prayer. But it's interesting, as I was reading it, I thought, you know, there's some parallels, and it's not found in the Sermon on the Mount, but there's some parallels found here and also with another prayer in the, in the Scriptures, And that's David's prayer in Psalm 139. And so what I want to do, I want to kind of kind of alternate between them and kind of show the parallels, but yet there's some rich stuff going on in both of these that might really be helpful for you when and if um, the bottom drops out in your life. Now, if it hasn't happened yet, (laughs) trust me, it will. It does happen. That's just part of it. So what do you do? Well, here's... Here's, here's Job. What did he do? So um, there's three insights I see, and we'll kind of... So want to put your bulletin in Psalm 139, and we'll skip back and forth just briefly. Of course, when a pastor says briefly, he never really means that, but I'm trying to be positive here. Job chapter 10, uh, there's uh, 22 verses, so we'll take, take a few verses at a time and then stop and make some comments Job chapter 10, verse 1. I loathe my own life. I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Is it right for you indeed to oppress, to reject the labor of your hands? 
and to look favorably on the schemes of the weak. Have you eyes of flesh, or do you see a man? See as a man sees. Are your days as days of a mortal, or your years as a man's year, that you should seek for my guilt and search after my sin? According to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty, yet there is no deliverance from your hand. First insight we get is Job has negative questions rather than acknowledging what God is really like. He doesn't start off really well. He could be summed up as a complaint. He himself says that. He speaks of the bitterness of his own soul. Job has negative questions rather than acknowledging what God is really like. Note his words. Verse 2, don't condemn me. Why are you contending with me? Verse 3, why do you oppress the labor of your hands? He acknowledges that he has been created by God, and yet you seem to favor the wicked. Uh, Verses 4 through 6, you act like a man looking for his guilt, searching for his guilt. Verse 7, he knows that he is not guilty, yet there's no deliverance from God. Obviously, Job has moved his full attention to his pain, his anguish, and his circumstances. Not a good place to be. Not a good place to be. But I sometimes wonder... Maybe we wouldn't do too much better if we had the same circumstances come down on us. Just something to think about. So let's all drop our stones and not be throwing any stones at our dear friend Job. Okay. Now let's turn to uh, Psalm 139. Here's David. Notice the difference. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path, my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence if I ascend to heaven? You are there if I make my bed in Sheol. Behold, you are there if I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea. Even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are light to you. Attention, please. He, uh, he says, God knows everything. God is omniscient in verses 1 through 6. Verses 7 through 12, he says, God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. So notice the difference. David's focus is not on himself, no matter what he's going through. David's focus is on God. And the truth of who God is, he focuses on God, not necessarily the pain and the anguish that he's going through. And he focuses on what's true about God, not necessarily what's true about his experience. Now, I don't know if if you've noticed this. Sometimes you'll think, well, this is true. 
Okay, this is true. This is what's happening to me. And then two days later, you're thinking, no, that wasn't true. This is true. Have you seen that in yourself? And then maybe when we get to heaven, we'll find out much of what we thought was true is uh, not true. David doesn't focus on his experience or his pain. He focuses on God who never changes. He never changes. He'll always be there. He's always omnipresent, and he always knows everything about us. He's omniscient. Jesus says in John 17, 17, thy word is truth. The truth about God is an anchor to our soul. So David's prayer begins not focusing on whatever he's going through, but David's prayer is rooted and grounded in the truth of what is revealed in the word about God. Now, do you ever wonder why the enemies of the faith are always attacking the Bible? (laughs) Do you ever wonder why they always go after the Bible? Why are they always saying, well, the Bible's full of errors, or the Bible is this, or the Bible... Why is that? Because the word of God, the truth of God is an anchor for our soul as opposed to uh, our experiences and experiences can come and go and we can think, well this is true and then it turns out to be not true but God's word never changes and God never changes, he's always with us and he knows everything about us a little different okay Let's go back to Job chapter 10. Let's read verses 8 through 12. He continues. Your hand fashioned and made me altogether, and would you destroy me? Remember now that you have made me as clay, and you would turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and loving kindness and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you have concealed in your heart. I know that this is within you. If I sin, then would you take note of me and would not acquit me of my guilt? If I am wicked, woe to me. And if I am righteous, I dare not lift up my head. I am sated with disgrace and conscious of my misery. Should my head be lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion. And again, you would show your power against me. You renew your witness against me and increase your anger toward me. Hardship after hardship is with me. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no eye had seen me. I would have been as though I had not been carried from womb to tomb. Second insight we see in these verses is Job challenges God's work in his life rather than seeing his love expressed in it. In verses 8 through 12, he understands how God is involved in his formation, in his creation, in his mother's womb. He he understands it, and he sees it as a sign of his loving kindness. He says that. In verse 12, 
Yet his problem is not that, but he says, you've been so loving to make me this way, but yet your love is not being expressed right now in my life. Verses 13 through 17, he thinks he knows what's on God's heart. Oh, I know what's on your heart. If I, if he sinned, he would not be acquitted, he says. If wicked or righteous, it makes no difference, says Job. Verse 16, God's power is against him. God is angry, bringing hardship on him. And his point is brought to conclusion. Verses 18 and 19, you showed me a lot of love when you formed me in my mother's womb. (laughs) But that hasn't worked out in my life. It would be better if I went from womb to tomb. And so, uh, not a very positive (laughs) prayer at this point. He sees God's love in his creation, and yet he doesn't see it now. Okay. Now, let's flip back to Psalm 139. Here's where the parallel really begins to strike home. David begins in verse 13. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unforged substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Job um, challenges God's work. David sees his love fully expressed. David comes from a completely different perspective. Now, notice what he's saying. Now, you've got to kind of grab a hold of this. In verses 1 through 12, he says, two of the wonderful characteristics of God are his omniscience, he knows everything, and his omnipresent, he's always there. Okay, that's that's what he's saying. Okay, we got that, we looked at that. Then he says... Now, I want to give you an example. I want to give you an example of the character and the nature of God. Okay, that's what he's doing. What's his example? What's the example he gives us? The child being formed in the womb of his mother. That's his example. That's what he's saying. Saying the the quickest thing, the most insightful thing I can say about the omnipresence and the omniscience of God is how he forms a child in a mother's womb. That's his point. Now, some people ask why oftentimes should we be concerned about this whole issue of the babe in the womb? 
and the whole issue that's going around our country concerning abortion? That's a fair question. Why as Christians should we not only just give lip service, but be involved as advocates for the pro-life position? Now, the media and everybody else, and most of the government will tell you why it's important for uh, pro-choice. But why should we as Christians be involved in this subject? Well, one of the reasons, one, is it's murder. And God says in his Bible, thou shalt not murder. Okay? That's good. That's a good one. And that's viable. The second would be, well, the pain and the anguish that the child goes through in that procedure, which, which concludes in his death, in her death. That's, that's evident if you've seen what abortion is about. Okay, so you have murder, the child, and also the pain and the anguish that the mother experiences uh, as a result of uh, this procedure. That's true. However, let's go to the scriptures. What does the scripture say? The scriptures say, in the womb, as that child is being formed, this is the characteristic, this is the illustration of the very character and the nature of God. That's what the scriptures say. That's a pretty good reason to be pro-life if you're a believer. Because the babe in the womb, the child in the womb is an expression of the nature and the character of God. And when a nation begins to kill its own children, it's spitting in the very nature and, and spitting at the very nature and character of the creator. That's the reason to be pro-life. Now I'm going to show you two pictures. I do this uh, not on a regular basis. I do this to show you the difference. And I've got two pictures over here, so I'll just walk over here. And the first picture is, we've seen this before. This is of a 19-week-old, that's God's creation. That's God creating in the womb. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a beautiful thing? That's what God does. This, however, this is, however, is choice. This is what man's choice does. That's, that's what man's choice does. That's what, man's, that's what we're talking about. That's what they do. Now, some people say, Neil, you should never show those pictures in church. Oh, I appreciate that. They're, they're horrifying, especially if we have children in the sanctuary. My kids have been seeing pictures like that since 1989, and they grew up loving God and loving little babies in the womb. The Bible says, you know the truth, the truth that God very character and nature is expressed fully as he develops that little child and the babe. And when we do that, we spit in the face of God. Okay. That's why we're pro-life here. That's why we're pro-life in this church. Not more just with lip service, 
but in being involved with CBR and many of the crisis pregnancy clinics and sidewalk counseling here because we honor God in his character. Okay. Now, notice in verses 17 and 18, however, how he comes to the end. We don't know what the difficulties that are in David's life at this time. Certainly he had some moments. But he comes away with a wonderful, worshipful, thankful heart. Notice what he says. How precious are your thoughts to me. How precious is your word to me. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. Okay. Job challenges God's work in his life. Uh, even though it was expressed fully in the womb, David carries that love throughout all of his life's experiences. Okay. Let's go back to the conclusion of David's prayer. Uh, Job's prayer, excuse me. Verse 20. Would he not let a few let my few days alone? Withdraw from me that I may have a little cheer. Before I go, I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of utter gloom, as darkness itself, or deep shadow without order, which shines in the darkness. Job longs to be left alone <laughs> rather than allow the Lord to search, know, and try him. In these verses, Job asked, listen, I just got a few more days. Would you please just leave me alone? (laughs) That's essentially what he's saying. I've only got a few days. Just go away and leave me alone. His perspective is way off, however, because if you turn to chapter 42, you'll never guess. He lives another 140 years after this experience. So he doesn't have a few days. He's got a lot of days. Um, Let's cheat for a moment. And he says, would you just leave me alone? That's what he's saying. Withdraw from me that I'll have a little pleasant few days, he says. If you turn to Job 42, you'll find out, 42.10, it says, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. Then all his brothers, verse 11, his sisters that all had known him came to him. They ate bread with him and house. They consoled him, comforted him. Verse, verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Then it gives how he was blessed, and then he had seven sons and three daughters. And he lived 140 years. Obviously, God didn't leave him alone. Obviously, God didn't pay any attention to his prayer. His attitude is far removed from the wisdom that Jesus' half-brother James gives in the first chapter. I love, I'm reading from the Phillips translation. Just listen. I love the way... Phillips translates James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says, When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your life, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Hey, so good. Remember, 
Hey, yay, get your pom-poms out. Yay, we're so glad to see you. (laughs) Realize that they come to test your faith and produce in you a quality of endurance. But let the process go on until that endurance is fully developed and you will find you have become men of mature character with the right sort of dependence, independence. Okay. Now let's go back to Psalm 139. How does David end his prayer? Verse 23 and 24 of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Don't, not just, don't leave me alone. Search me, try me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting life. He gives God full permission, doesn't he? Go ahead. Come on into my inner life. (laughs) Go ahead. Come on in. And then he says, it's okay, God, to put me through trials and temptations. Try me and know my thoughts. He tells God, do whatever needs to be done in me that those hurtful things might be taken out. See if there be any hurtful way in me. And the purpose, he tells God, is that you can lead me to the everlasting way. Now, it's wonderful that God didn't answer his prayer. He didn't leave him alone. And he didn't listen to him because he greatly blessed him. And he gave him many years. Now, Notice the difference. Dealing with similar subjects, but a different perspective. What, what makes the perspective of David so different from Job? Um, it's said of uh, David that he was a man after God's own heart, so he's a good man, amen? Now, Job, if you remember, beginning in verse 1 of chapter, chapter 1, verse 8, says... Uh, There is no one on earth blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away. They were both good men. I don't want to make too much difference over this, but there is one difference, glaring difference, that I see between them both in their experience. If you remember my introduction several weeks ago, I said that Job probably is the oldest book in the Bible. There's no reference to any of the laws, uh, the Mosaic laws, the temple, the tabernacles. Most people feel that the book of Job was written prior to Moses being even alive, or maybe in conjunction with. And so the one thing that David had that Job didn't have was what? The scriptures. Didn't have, didn't have the Pentateuch. Didn't, didn't, have the, didn't have it. Well, I don't want to make, you wouldn't want to make that walk on all fours, but it, it's an interesting point that the word of God, the word of God, is so much a part of David's prayer. And it became an anchor and enabled him to pray as he did. Okay, now, in conclusion, let's see if we can kind of pull this together. I have come up with three practical lessons to learn. Three practical lessons. You might want to write these down there. You're probably aware of them, but I don't want to sound so negative about Job. 
because there are some things that we can learn from what he did and there are three of them first when difficulties arrive and friends are without answers turn to the Lord (laughs) when difficulties arrive and friends have no answers or even actually being critical of you you know what you should do turn to the Lord there is a psalm in Psalm, psalm 73 this man is a man it's a psalm of Asaph but listen to what he says just let me read it Psalm 73 says um, surely God is good to Israel those who are pure in heart then he goes on he says but as for me my feet came close to stumbling my steps had almost slipped what was the problem Asaph for I was envious of the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked in other words similar circumstances not exactly but he came to a place where he said you know I almost gave up my feet came to slipping well what happened verse 13 he tells us surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and I washed my hands in innocent he's thinking look at the wicked they get away with everything why have I even bothered trying to be righteous verse 14 for I have been stricken all day long and chastised every morning. See, he says, the wicked are being prosperous and I'm being beat up. What's that about? If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He goes on, verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Here's the answer. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, they perceived their end. It wasn't until he entered into the presence of God that everything kind of, oh yeah, okay, I, I got it, I got it. When difficulties arise and friends are without answers, it's time to turn to the Lord. Now oftentimes, some people medicate themselves when in trouble. They we overeat, we take, you know, alcohol, get drunk, drugs, whatever it is, just to medicate ourselves from our problems. That's not what the scriptures enjoin us to do. As a matter of fact, our classic example is Jesus. Do you remember? All of his friends, his disciples, uh, they didn't have a clue what was going on. Matter of fact, his best friend denied him three times. Others fled and left him. The leaders of Israel were out to string him up, and that's exactly what they did. And he wasn't exactly looking forward to the next 24 hours in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what did Jesus do? He prayed. He turned to the Lord. When difficulties arise and friends are without answers, and hostility is brewing, I could add, turn to the Lord. Second conclusion is prayers need to be honest and direct from your heart. Now, you might not like the words that Job uttered in that prayer, but my friends, do you know where Job was at? (laughs) Do you get a feeling that he was not playing, oh God, I just love you so much and it's so wonderful, everything that's going on in my life. Did he pray that prayer? No, 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 no. He was honest and very open with God where his heart was at. 
And that's very, very important if you consider Psalm 139.4 where it says, even before there's a word on my tongue, you know it, O Lord. So why are we pretending in our prayers? Our prayers should be expressive of who we are and where we find. Because God already knows your heart. And so at least we can say, Job was honest with God and poured out his heart before the Lord. Third, answers to prayers are not always immediately forthcoming. Now, we all know how the book ends. We, we, we cheated. We can look at chapter 42. But at this point, Job didn't have a clue. And it didn't seem, and you'll see as we go on, as finish this book, that it became evident uh, that all through his experience, as recorded in most of these chapters, Job didn't have a clue what was happening. And the Lord didn't seem to answer, be answering his prayers, but he did, but not immediately. And finally, what... Job asked for, the Lord ignores. Did you see that? Just leave me alone. Don't bother with me. Go away. What does he do? He doesn't leave him alone. And he does what Job never thought he was going to do. He did exceedingly abundantly. He gave his his children back, his prosperity, his health. Thank God he didn't listen to Job. He didn't leave him alone. And maybe there's some prayers that you prayed or are praying that you, after, with perspective, might think, thank you, Jesus, for not answering that prayer. Answers to prayer are not only always immediately forthcoming. Okay. A young boy entered a barbershop, a story is told. The barber whispers to his customer, This is the dumbest kid in the world. Watch while I prove it to you. The barber puts a dollar bill in one hand and two quarters in the other and calls the boy over and says, Which one do you want, son? The boy takes the quarters and leaves. What did I tell you, said the barber? That kid never learns. Later on, the customer leaves. He sees the young man... The young boy coming out of the ice cream store. Hey, son, can I ask you a question? Boy says, sure. Why did you take the quarters instead of the dollar bill? The boy smiled, licked the cone, and said, because the day I take the dollar, the game is over. (laughs) Some people never learn. Now the question is, who never learns? (laughs) Here's the question for you. Will we learn of the goodness and the love of God in spite of our current circumstances? Will we learn of the truth of God's word and that God is in our lives And he will do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think. Will we learn that he's working all things together for the good, even when we can't see it 
or sense it. Pray with me, please. Father, we we oftentimes come to your word confused, not understanding. Who knows? Our senses sometimes overwhelm us. We can't figure you out. Personally, I'm very thankful that I can't figure you out. I could fight my way out of a paper bag sometimes. But you're always present in my life and you know everything about me. And yet, even then, you show me your grace and your mercy. You blow our minds with your goodness. And so, Lord, help us to learn of your goodness. Help us to see what you're calling us to do, be salt and light in this culture that seems to have forgotten much of what we find in the book, in your word. Lord, difficult days we sense are coming. We don't know that for sure. Maybe we're wrong. But it certainly seems that way unless a a revival really happens in this country. So help us to be true to what you've called us to be true to, to be faithful to what you've called us to be faithful and especially to honor you and your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.